Hello and welcome. This is Kelly Fitzpatrick with Redmond here with another episode of The Docs Are In. With me is my wonderful colleague, Dr. Kate Holterhoff. And today we have an extra Docs Needed episode of The Docs Are In, in which we get to talk to multiple guests with doctorates about topics related to TechCom and documentation. With us today are Dr. Liz Hutter and Dr. Halcyon Lawrence. It's worth noting that we were all Britain postdoctoral fellows together at Georgia Tech in overlapping years. And both Halcyon and Liz were excellent mentors, especially to me because I spent a lot of time doing, doing, you know, TechCom. Thank you, Halcyon and Liz for joining us. Um, before we get started with, with questions, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are and what you do? So yes, I am currently um, an assistant professor at the University of Dayton, um, and I teach primarily technical communication courses. Um, and part of that here also includes health communication. So I teach a lot of the health science, pre-med, pre-OT, pre-PT students. Um, let's see, I am... I got my doctorate in at the University of Minnesota, and at that time, I was in an English department. So my background is in literature, I um, specifically 19th century American literature. But I was also teaching uh, writing, as you all have, uh, uh, composition courses. But the postdoc fellow at Georgia Tech really kind of pivoted me towards technical communication. Um, and it was something I think I was doing and interested in, but I didn't have a name for it. So when I was, um, I first started in business communication and then moved over into the working with the computer science students, um, I felt a real affinity for um, what was the kind of writing and the kinds of questions and the considerations we um, were asking. Uh, so I sort of like, I think TechCom found me in that respect. Mm -hmm. And sort of since then, I um, have embraced it. And uh, and that's how I, yeah, and I teach that now. I really have not taught literature in a very long time. Thanks, Liz. So I am uh, an associate professor at Towson University in the English department. And this is my fifth, my fifth year at Towson. It's been really great. I teach what is called a service course. So these are, these are technical, mm -hmm. uh, technical writing courses that are offered at the upper level to non-English majors. So the courses that I teach meet some core requirements or some, um, in some cases, some elective requirements for other majors in biology and physics and in environmental science. We also have a Towson a graduate professional writing program, and I also teach in that. So I teach courses in web design, um, one course in particular I'm really excited about that I've been developing and refining is a course called Science and its Public Audience. And um, I teach courses in technical communication information design in that program as well. I'll share a little bit more uh, about my journey to TechCom um, from industry a little bit later on. I know you have one of, a question about that, so I'll share more about that later. I feel like both of you could have just been like, I teach all the things. <laughs> We're going to cover the, the the list, the brief, yeah. probably the abbreviated list that you gave us. Especially in English departments, right? When, I mean, you have most English departments are pretty heavy laden with literature faculty, and then you have a handful of writing, writing faculty. So 
it, it feels like you, you get to teach everything at some point in time. And I would also add, I think that was the appeal for me of technical communication as a discipline is that it really, you did do a lot of things, which again, I think is what I was drawn to. I think it's by its or, or origins with um, engineering schools, it is interdisciplinary. Um, uh, so it didn't, whereas sometimes with literature, that feels like an add-on or depending upon what direction you're going in in literary studies. But I just felt that com was just because it did all the things. I could never get bored and I was always learning new things and working with different kinds of subject matters and um, stakeholders. So yes, that's a great point. I teach, there's a class that I teach two sections of every semester for the last five years. And I still love it because it's always changing. My students are always bringing something new into it. It just never gets dull for me. All right. So I think maybe this is a good time to, to try to situate uh, this you know, sort of broader conversation in terms of our audience, because a lot of the docs are in uh, viewers were not teachers at any point, unlike the four of us. So could you situate what it's like to teach technical communication for a sort of, you know, a lay audience? And maybe that would involve, you know, telling us a little bit about, you know, uh, the case of, of uh, you know, your path to TechCom, if there's, you know, any sort of details that might be relevant to that. Um, and then how did you, you know, land at TechCom at your particular universities? And, uh, you know, what keeps you on the academic side of the house rather than defecting to industry like Kelly and I have done? I love that too, defecting. I, <laughs> I actually defected to uh, academia. So I, I, I've moved between academia and industry. Mm -hmm. I, as soon after I left, I was teaching at the university and the West Indies as an adjunct faculty member for quite a few years. And then I had an opportunity to go into IT. And so I worked in IT for about five years as a technical trainer. And I loved it. Um, I loved the fact that I, it was one of those moments when I recognized that once I could understand something technical, I could teach um, to different types of audiences. And so that I had this, this ability to be able to translate really technical concepts to non-technical audiences or non-expert audiences. And so that really became an area of expertise for me. And then I I think maybe around 2004 or five, I got a call from the university, the um, faculty of engineering at the University of the West Indies indicating that they had an, a couple of engineering courses that needed support, writing support. Our students were required to, um, and this was in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering, students were required to do a final thesis as an undergrad thesis, and they just needed um, some better writing support. And I remember going into that classroom and designing a, a course um, and teaching, but I felt I was teaching on instinct. I didn't have a term to describe what I was doing. I had no idea that that was a form of technical communication. And one of the first conferences that I went to in England in 2006, I stepped into that conference. And I was like, oh, this is a field. And there are people who, you know, aren't scratching their heads when I speak. I felt like I just stepped into a community that I did not know that I existed. 
And that, that was the impetus for me coming to Chicago to pursue a PhD in technical, um, compute, technical communication and information design. I did that at IIT. Um, and I completed that degree in, in 2013. So it's been 10 years. Um, and so, so I moved from industry into, into academia. There's a part of me that misses working in industry, perhaps maybe as a consultant, not, you know, sort of full-time at any one organization. I think my students benefit from me having a connection to industry. And so I am looking at, at ways of, of being able to, to, to make those connections again. But one of the things that I help students do in the classroom is think about the ways in which um, they're able to to become mediators of, of technical artifacts and, and technical writing as a way of communicating these technical ideas and concepts to non-expert audiences. And when we mean, when we say non-expert, we don't mean uneducated. We don't mean ignorant. We don't we mean, um, that they aren't experts in other areas, but for this particular thing that they're communicating, that user or that reader might not cons- be considered to be an expert. Um, we've been thinking a lot in the field of tech com, um, particularly about how um, the role of the technical communicator is increasingly about um, supporting social justice, thinking about who doesn't get to participate in these conversations, for whom um, technology marginalizes and, and um, uh, creates uh, you know, disproportionate um, outcomes. And so our students are engaged with more critical questions about not just about writing about technology, but about being able to critique technology in the first place and thinking um, more about a broad selection of users as they they write and they communicate with them. And I I love, oh, there's so much good stuff. I feel like we could talk about just that for the rest of the rest of the set. but the whole idea that that technology is not some type of like objective good and that it, 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 there's like this apparent inherent um, way to read it or talk about it that is the same for everybody. I think, oh my God, that's so important. Yeah, it is. And I mean, it's the impetus for the people that I know you wanted us to chat a little bit about. So, I mean, I, maybe Liz can share a little bit about the, the, the background and the history of, of that work. Um, that we've been we've been collaborating on for a couple of years now. So um, I would also, um, before I do that, I think just another piece of my background is um, it's not really industry, or it's not the way I think of industry. But my path actually to grad school um, was um, interrupted, I guess, by I was working um, in I was a, I was working in the sciences um, as a laboratory technician for a couple of years. Um, and then at another time, then I went got my master's and then I went into medical publishing for a couple of years. So um, at the time, again, I don't think I was before I did the publishing before I um, did my Ph.D. But uh, so when I went into graduate school, I think I already had a sense that there were I wouldn't have named them users at the time, but I certainly was aware of audience Um, in ways that uh, my graduate program, we weren't thinking about when it came to sort of our literary um, research. Uh, 
So I think for me, um, and this is, you know, transitioning into the tech comm classroom, sort of the mm-hmm. concept that I really latched onto um, was, was how information had to be um, useful and relevant and um, applicable to particular kinds of situations. So um, even though now I and now I um, you know work with the or I teach the service course service tech com course for the health science students, but for that what that means is thinking about patients um, in their sort of socio historical context. So um, so it kind of and I think that adds a different dimension to the way my students are you know, they're in their O-chem, organic chemistry classes and their anatomy classes. And so things are very factual and, you know, they're memorizing um, concepts or processes. Uh, but so a class, TechCom class for me lately has become really a place to think more about even themselves as health professionals. Um, where do they come from? What do they value? Um, what can they, um, what kind of information does this, does their patient need? How do they um, explain it in a way, again, that relates to it? So um, to bring that then back to, I think that concept of the user, when I was at Georgia Tech um, and working with Halcyon, we were um, co-teaching the junior capstone computer science um, course. It was at a point where students were pitching um, their project. So it was the first semester of a two-semester sequence. I, I believe that was the stage and they were conceptualizing um, what design project they wanted. And um, at that point, we were noticing sort of uh, students seemed to have by students were pitching things that really put the technology first, as in we can do this or wouldn't it be great if we can do this and then kind of work backwards and had to kind of figure out why that technology um that they were proposing was necessary or useful or um or desired by and they weren't thinking really at that stage clearly uh, or clearly and concretely enough about who this thing they could do who it was for so it was at that point we started realizing there were some patterns in the way students were approaching their development um, and this kind of led to then the, the the four patterns that we talk about in our paper on the discourse of of innovation. So, um, like one of the patterns we notice is that students kind of came from this deficit model, which is that because there wasn't, they hadn't clearly, they weren't responding to a problem. They sort of had to invent it in a way, or or overemphasize it, and so it kind of came out as you know there was the the user lacked something. So kind of this deficit model and, and what they lacked, the um, technology they were developing was gonna you know, replace it and, and make all things better. Um, so we noticed a lot of, and also a lot of essentializing um, in terms of the way they pitched their, um, made their pitches as well. So kind of, um, everyone needs this or all do this. They sort of had these phrases of, of universality that, that didn't really recognize the particular, um, situations in which, um, their, again, whatever they were um, pitching would be used or even the particularities of, of who their users, um, would be. So, so those were two of the narratives, um, or two of the patterns. So Halsey and I, I think there were a couple others. Do you want to? 
Yeah. Even as you're talking, it's, it's taking me back to, to listening to some of those pictures. There were so many grand claims about what seemed to be really simple apps, you know, that, um, that this app will change the world. Um, and, and Liz and I started getting curious about where those patterns were coming from. Like, where do students learn to, to talk about a smoothie app as having, you know, these revolutionary um, effects? Um, the, the smoothie app that will save the world. Will save the world. Yes. <laughs> and change our lives all for the better. All for the better. Yeah. So aside from aside from the the deficit model so that the the user was always in need of um saving <laughs> because they they some deficit existed um just to back up a little bit what what we did in this article which um the title of it is called the discourse of innovation a new domain for accountability what we started thinking about is the way that the way that technological innovations get described, that discourse around innovation, um, really has to be held accountable. We started noticing very similar patterns about um, the way in which our, we just mentioned our students were talking about technology, but also in journalism, that a tech, tech, technology journalist were talking about um, these technologies in the same way. And so um, two of the other patterns that we noticed was the way in which pathos gets invoked through some compelling narrative that there's always the developer has this story, um, often a story of one, um, maybe one person, a use case um, that has just sort of shifted their trajectory on why this particular um, device needs to be created and, and make its way in the world. And so this simple use case then gets, um, generalized to a greater need. But, but this idea of pathos, if you, you get your audience to sympathize and to empathize with a problem, um, was definitely one of the patterns that we saw. And then the other pattern that we saw was, um, that some inalienable right gets invoked. Um, we didn't always see this in the classroom, but as we started looking at a couple of uh, case studies, we looked at the uh, Theranos um, device. Uh, we looked at um, a device that was uh, purported to uh, read one's mind. And we looked at a, a case of a sign aloud glove um, and in all of these cases, we saw developers um, couching the problem that this device would restore a user's inalienable right, the right to communicate, the right to, you know, to... Um, the right yes, to the right to help. Yes, access the healthcare information. And what was problematic, of course, about that is that when these rights get invoked, what really we don't enter into conversation about is what's really the problem. Why don't people have access to human, to, to, um, to universal health care? What are sort of the socio-historical, political, 
contexts that are de depriving people in the first place. Um, and so it was really striking with the Theranos case where Elizabeth Holmes would um, suggest that this device, um, the Edison, would fix that problem when we knew that it's far more than just the prick of the finger and getting um, multiple tests done by one drop of blood. So that was another pattern that, that we noticed. And I think the last pattern um, was that there was always sort of a disproportionate scale of the impact with the simplicity of the solution. So, you know, by the click of a button, um, uh, the most recent one that Liz and I have been looking at is Sanus AI that um, allows a user to click a button and their call center um, call center representatives can, can click a button and they no longer um, are heard using their native accents, but they can sound American or they can sound white. So this, at the click of a button, even if you go to Sanus AI's website, you'll see magic, you know, on their, on their website. So there was always this very simple solution um, that would benefit the world, benefit millions, benefit thousands, whole communities, um, which is a really attractive proposition, right? And so we started looking at the ways in which those ideas got replicated across a number of technological devices. And the people that we've written asked readers to start thinking about why is it the way that it is um, and, and suggesting that given that we are now at a, a watershed moment of holding technology, companies accountable um, for what they put out into the world, that we also have to hold the discourse around those technologies accountable as well. I think that uh, sums it up. <laughs> I think that sums it up. Uh, delightfully is probably the term the term that I would use. And um, you know, and as I was rereading the paper, we'll we'll put a link to the paper in the show notes, or so people can go and, and, and check it out. Um, discourse is something that since I've moved into to the tech industry, it's not a term that we use as often as we do in say academia, especially with especially in English departments. Um, but here I feel like it's one that is so apt. Um, just the patterns that you're describing, where you have, you know, folks who are promoting these solutions that are are addressing just the symptoms of things that are, are deeper problems or that are positioning entire populations as, as somehow having a problem that needs to be that needs to be solved or in, in a way that they need to be saved. And I'm like, Yes, discourse is exactly the type of uh, word or the discourse of discourse is, I think, what is it, it, very appropriate here. And Absolutely. Go ahead, Liz. Yes. Oh, just a small anecdote. Um, uh, this kind of talks about, too, where students learn this, but um, I gave a version, this was like over a year ago, or soon after we did the SIGDOC presentation, I gave a version of that presentation to my department as like one of our kind of... Um, lunch hour uh, sessions. And um, and it landed a little bit differently than the way I think we're talking about it, because what my that audience responded to um, was like, oh, my gosh, we teach that in our, you know, English 100 or 200 mm -hmm. class. So like that, you know, and so they were kind of like, wait, we're doing this, but you're saying also it's become, you know, it can be exploited almost or misapplied. Um, and manipulative too. Uh, it can mask a lot of the complexities that, um, in the case of the developers, um, the complexity of what goes into that development and the assumptions that they're making. 
So, um, and it was, I was, I appreciated their reaction too, because I do think we teach students. And again, in our composition classes, how do you attract, how do you engage your audience? Well, you tell a compelling story um, that uses, we, we teach pathos. So um, I think there's something like these, uh, that this discourse is almost like just regularized in the way um the way our classrooms are set up, um, like the way we're taught to write, um, for example. So I think the the tech comm side of things are what I, I mean, it's changed the way I even think about when I teach the composition classes. I'm now very careful about um, how I'm presenting these um, strategies to students. Um, and, I, and again, I think it comes back to um, the context and the and thinking, the context in which they are um, writing or speaking or, or, or developing, um, but really getting students um, to think about the implication. So if you say this, why are you saying that? Um, you know, who is our, who in your audience will relate to that? Who won't and why? And, and I think that, you know, ties back to one of the implications, I think, that we had for our, our paper too, which is um, if you don't think about the implications, um, some of the the biases, the implicit biases, um, the injustices, the exclusions just get replicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that and that brings brings up one of the points that we we echo. Ma Hicks in their work talks about the fact that if it's if a technology is Reinscribing bias, it cannot be called, it cannot be described as being revolutionary. And yet that is the discourse that we see quite often when technology journalists are writing about technology, this revolutionary thing. Um, and yet we're seeing that communities continue to get marginalized. They don't get pulled into the, um, their lives aren't, you know, getting any better because of this technology. And so we have to really, the discourse itself continues to, to re-inscribe that, um, that bias. I was going to say that one of the other things, one of the ways that this has changed how I teach technical communication is I, I have asked my students to think a lot more about their rules as power brokers, as communicators, that they hold this really important, powerful rule in, translating and communicating they get to decide what's important they get to decide what an audience or a user hears about this technology and so they have they have to examine their own positionality um to the artifact what are the assumptions what are their experiences but they also have to um examine their own positionality with regard to the users what kind of power do they hold um, what kinds of experiences, their geographic location, their gender orientation, and how, how do all of those identity markers begin to bear on what they produce as technical communicators? What gets talked about? What doesn't get talked about? What gets critiqued? Um, one of the things that we noticed, for example, um, we were looking at the chat GPT um, coverage, news coverage, very different. Um, journalists have offered very balanced views about that. And we were even speculating if in part because of the very nature of what ChatGPT does, the, there's sort of this very personal impact um, on journalists. And so they're able to appreciate 
you know, why it's, it's problematic in a way that perhaps we've seen, you know, other, other kinds of technology being described as revolutionary. And so journalists play a really important part of that, that, that process. And we have to, we have to hold that language accountable. I very much right now I'm thinking in my mind um, and, and hoping that, that students who have gone through both of your courses end up not only in tech journalism, but maybe maybe in marketing or something like that. Because, like, you know, talking about the rhetoric and, and the way these things are uh, spoken about in, in journalism is one thing, but often journalism, the way we think is so much affected by the, you know, marketing and the way things are messaged from, you know, vendors and creators themselves. So there's so much goodness going on there. Um, but Kate, I know you had a, you had a question in going back to like where this, this paper came from and the origins of that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important because we've, we've really dug into all of this nuance with context, especially when it comes to where our students are coming from with your own background. And I think maybe it's important for us to, to think about how um, you know, how we're sort of ingesting this sort of critical work here. So I guess I, you know, I, uh, th this research was initially presented at the 2021 conference for the special interest group on design of communication of the Association for Computing Machinery or <laughs> ACM SIGDOC, uh, which Hal, I know you were the program co-chair. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's published as part of these proceedings. So for folks who, who aren't familiar with, um, you know, what is SIGDOC, uh, wh what is this audience like? Like, how can we sort of uh, better understand how folks were understanding the type of research that is, uh, you know, absolutely important and should be more widely uh, read? You know, how, how are they understanding this? What, what is this sort of uh, discourse community uh, look like? To answer that question, Kate, I was thinking about I was thinking about your your listeners, your potential listeners, and I'm sure many of them are familiar with um a number of other SIGs connected to ECM. So um the the SIG doc in particular stands for special interest group um on the design of communication. It actually is the smallest SIG in ECM. Um I think about what three hundred members. I've recently joined the um the committee and so um it's been interesting sort of seeing how such a small committee works within a larger um organization like ECM. I mean some SIGs have tens of thousands of members. Um what's unique about SIGDOC of course and, and Liz and I were laughing because we're introducing yet another doc um here today. It's the design of communication. So this particular SIG is interested in how communication gets designed. It it, we're interested in for whom it gets designed, the kinds of choices that um, technical, uh, um, the kinds of choices that we make around the design of communicating about technical artifacts. What's also really great about this um, this thing is that the, the the members come both from industry and and academia, and I know that for many disciplines, there's always a concern about how you bridge that academic and and professional divide, not just for building a bridge for students, but how do we benefit from the research that happens in academia and the kind of research that happens in industry and making that those kinds of findings um, publishable and accessible to broader audiences. And, and so SIGDOC is great in that it's, it, it does that. With, there is a, a flagship publication called Commun Com Communication Design 
quarterly that I think, yeah, it comes out four times a year. Um, and then we have this, this annual conference. The year that Liz and I, the year that I um, co-chaired was a pandemic year. So we actually not, had an online. I should say not me, Liz. Oh, oh sorry. Yes, I had, a, I had a co-chair, um, Liz Lean, who is at the University of Memphis. And it was also the year that Liz Hutter and I wrote this article because the theme that year was accountability. We were coming out of this period of COVID. We thought, Lizleen and I thought that this would be a, a great opportunity for us as a community of researchers to stop and take stock. Um, and we were interested in, in having researchers think about um, accountability before we moved on to other things. And so Liz and I, had, Liz Hutter and I, who had been thinking about um this discourse and language around technology so this would be a great place to to finally write this paper and it's a paper that we're really proud of as well it you know it it holds up (laughs) and unfortunately i think it's going to hold up for for quite a while it it does and and just rereading it to prepare for this i'm like this is so relevant especially with everything going on with generative AI and the way we talked a little bit about that, but very timely and a paper that I think will continue to be, to be timely. We are getting close to time and there's one more question I have for, for both of you. So, um, you know, Liz and Halcyon, another collaborative piece that you've contributed to with some of our other former colleagues from Georgia Tech um, was a case study in the December 2022 issue of Programmatic Perspectives. And again, we'll put a link to that in the show notes on Georgia Tech's Computer Science Junior Design and Tech Com Sequence, which is the program that like we've all, we, I think we've all taught it. What was it like looking back at your time in, in that program and kind of revisiting it and like seeing how it has evolved over the years? Yeah, uh, that's it's um it's humbling and impressive. I think um, Hal and I, our moment in the program kind of came, I think, at a at a at a pivotal moment when the program really was moving kind of away from um, I don't know uh, I forget we probably had a word for it, but kind of where techcom was attached with computer science. Um, we were moving away from that to something where the integration of the technical communication and the computer science was um, much stronger to the point where it was hard to separate maybe what was techcom and what was um, computer science. And so um, so in that moment, I think, you know, we weren't able or at the time I couldn't see like where we were going. But looking back on it, I think um, that was we it was a critical moment um, because everything by moving towards a more integrated uh, model for the teaching um, for the clients and everything became integrated. It really is what allowed, I think, the program to grow. Uh, so it's looking back the humbling because yeah, that, that was six, seven years ago. Um, it's, it's gone quite far. <laughs> Uh, so writing that article was, I was amazed at, or I appreciated, amazed, but I also appreciated really the complexity of participants who were part of that program. So 
Um, it wasn't just the instructors. Um, it was the clients. Um, it was administrators in both departments or both colleges. Um, there was even like legal now. We have um, a legal component to uh so um, it really um, is impressive and just the breadth of that um, and um, and the kinds of collaboration. I mean, collaboration could be kind of an overused word, but um, the collaboration at every step of the way, um, always negotiating um, something, um, a priority, a value, a process of doing something. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I think that comes out over the course of the program, over that, the program's history is just the maintaining that and sustaining that complexity. Yeah, thanks for that, Liz. I, I'm, I'm happy for the question, just the opportunity to be able to reflect on that reflection process that we did. And it appeared to me that looking back at 10 years of a program and writing about it is another form of documentation that we don't often think about. And that there is value in documenting experiences along with documenting processes and standards and syntax. And, and the reason I think there is value in documenting experiences is that we recognize that experiences happen within a particular context, particular social context, historical context. And it explains the kinds of decisions that we make around design that we face at particular points in the program real constraints. We couldn't do certain things and therefore we made certain kinds of choices. And I think documenting that becomes important because there is an implication for replicability. And Liz and I were talking about this, you know, that somebody can pick up that kind of article and think, oh great, I'd love to do this in my in my own institution. Um but this might not work in the way that I see it documented here. And I, I wonder if for your listeners who are also developers, um, if they may be attracted to that idea of, of, of moving beyond documentation that is just about code and thinking about documentation that also um, acknowledges sort of the context in which these decisions about um, their, own, their own applications get made. I think, I think that's an important an important thing to to consider. So it was it was good. It was it was messy. <laughs> I mean, there was what six six or seven of us who were writing the paper, and um, so there was this constant triangulating that was going on, and um, it, it's it's messy because it's not something that's over. It's still in flux and still changing. Um, people remember things um, differently in terms of why certain things you know, happened the way that they did. And so it was it was a really messy, wonderful experience in that context to be able to to say here's what happened, but also here's why it happened the way in which it happened, I think is valuable. Yeah. It has been an absolute privilege to catch up with Halcyon and Liz, uh talking about the research. And uh, I'm looking forward to, to you know, studying some of these uh, uh, reports and, and, and uh, articles that you've written with uh, a new eye, a more, you know, educated lens. So I uh, want to thank you and, and please be sure to join us for future Docs Are In, where we talk all things documentation, doctorates, upscaling. Uh, and uh, with that, the Docs are out. <laughs>